Marathon Medic podcast. My name's Amy and I'm a junior doctor and running coach with an interest in sports medicine. On this episode, I'm chatting to Dr. Graham Stewart. Dr. Stewart is a consultant cardiologist, an honorary associate professor in sports and exercise cardiology at the University of Bristol, and he's also the medical director of Sports Cardiology UK. We're discussing the effects of exercise on heart health, the role of cardiac screening, red flag symptoms to be aware of, and the importance of rest and recovery. So welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining me. If we could just start by learning a little bit about you and your background, and also if you wouldn't mind explaining to the listeners a little bit about what sports cardiology is. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, Amy, I'm a, my name is Graham Stewart. I'm a cardiologist and uh, for many years I've enjoyed sport in various forms and also professionally I've my career has changed so I now work with children and adults with complex congenital heart disease but in doing that I was coming across youngsters who would have problems on exercise heart related problems and that led me to study more so I did a master's in sports and exercise medicine and uh, about 11 or 12 years ago I started a company where I look after, give advice and help athletes who've got cardiovascular problems. That's Sports Cardiology UK. And my research is also looking into prescribing exercise for young people with with cardiac disease. And I think most people have a relatively good understanding of what the heart does when we're doing exercise. But I was just wondering if you would mind summarising what happens to the heart when we exercise and also if this changes depending on the intensity of the sport that we're doing. Yeah, so I mean, the, the heart the heart is an amazing organ. Um, often when I'm, I'm showing an ultrasound scan to a, a teenager, I'll say, imagine if you're an engineer, you could produce a pump that could last for 100 years and you could run it on Mars bars. And that's what the, the heart is. So it's an amazing, amazing organ. And it's responsible for driving the blood around the heart, sending nutrients to the various tissues and, and oxygen, of course. And if you exercise, like any muscle, and the heart's just a muscle, if you exercise, that muscle becomes stronger. And uh, two main things happen, really, is if you do a lot of sport, particularly endurance sport, your heart rate will will drop. You'll develop what's called a relative bradycardia. And that's related to the output of the heart, which can be calculated by looking at the number of times the heart beats and the amount of volume pumped out every time. So that's the stroke volume. And so as the heart enlarges, you need a slower heart rate at rest to produce the same effect. So traditionally, some uh, top endurance athletes like um, Induran, the the um, ex-Tour de France cyclist, reputedly had a heart rate of 28 at rest, which is about a third of most people. And so your heart rate slows and the muscle of the heart gets thicker. And that leads to a, a condition called athlete's heart. So if as a cardiologist I see a patient with a thick heart muscle, it's very important I know whether or not they're an athlete because if they have a thick heart muscle and they're a sedentary type of person, that may be abnormal, whereas the same picture may be normal in an athlete. So we'll come on to, I suppose, some of the negative impacts that sport can have on the heart. But just so that we start off on a positive note, would you mind sharing some of the benefits that physical activity and exercise has on the heart? Um, I know that you've mentioned that there's a thicker wall of the heart in athletes. So is this a good thing? And what are the other benefits that exercise offers? Yeah, I mean, the 
exercise has been described as the sort of panacea in terms of medical treatment. The human body is designed to be active. and We've evolved to be active. So regular exercise has multiple benefits. You have everything from strengthening your bones, reducing the likelihood of diabetes, reducing the uh, likelihood of developing certain cancers, bowel cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer. And for a middle-aged man, it reduces your likelihood of developing dementia, and that can directly correlate to the amount of exercise you do in middle age. So there's lots of general benefits. In terms of heart benefits, um, if you exercise regularly, you greatly reduce your chance of developing ischemic heart disease, so-called smoker's degenerative heart disease. And just moving towards the, I suppose, more negative aspects of exercise on heart health, I just wanted to touch on the topic of sudden cardiac death in sport. So I was hoping you would be able to explain what sudden cardiac death in sport is and what, if anything, we can do to reduce the risk of this happening, both as athletes ourselves, but also if there's healthcare professionals listening, um, what we can do to try and reduce the risk of this happening in our patients or if we uh, are treating athletes right well i mean the most common scenario is where somebody has an underlying heart problem which they're not aware of and so when they exercise they increase the likelihood of the consequences of that heart problem so for example there are conditions called cardiomyopathies fancy way of saying heart muscle disease that may not show themselves uh, at rest but when you exercise that may increase the likelihood of abnormal rhythms Similarly, if you have a heart valve abnormality, um, that can do the same thing. Some holes in the heart can do the same thing. And sometimes congenital abnormalities of the coronary arteries, which are little blood vessels supplying blood to the heart muscle. When the heart is stressed, that's when sometimes these abnormalities can, can develop. In terms of how you deal with them, well, uh, firstly, in the United Kingdom, if, if a family member is found to have one of these abnormalities, then that should lead to screening of all the other fa- first-degree family relatives. That should do, but it doesn't always. And so that's uh, there's a, um, a big push for more and more cascade testing of, of families where these conditions have been found so that we can pick up asymptomatic people and treat them before they develop a problem. The alternative way of doing it is... Uh, as pioneered, for example, by the Italians, where there's screening of athletes. And since the 1980s, every person doing competitive sport between the ages of 13 and 35 or so in Italy has to have at least, uh, or has to have a regular sports cardiology screen, which involves a questionnaire and an ECG, which is a measurement of the electrical activity of the heart. And that's uh, picked up a lot of previously undiagnosed heart problems. And the Italians would claim that that's greatly reduced the amount of athletic-related cardiac death. Uh, and in the United Kingdom, increasingly professional sports bodies are, are, are developing screening services. So for many years, the Football Association have had a screening service for young footballers when they start and get the professional contract. Now the um, professional rugby union um, the, uh, more or less all the, the Olympic Association, most of the big sports uh, organizations would recommend screening at a, for their higher level athletes. It's not yet available generally for um, recreational athletes, although some charities such as Cry, Cardiac Risk and the Young do provide screening services for, for recreational athletes. And as you mentioned there, we obviously can't 
all um, have screening for any cardiac abnormalities. So for the typical recreational athlete, what are the symptoms or red flag features that they should be on the lookout for, which should trigger them to go and speak with a doctor, um, with their GP, about getting some more investigations and potentially quite extensive cardiac screening? What are the things that they could be on the lookout for to try and reduce their, their risk of sudden cardiac events happening in sport? First of all, if you're going to take up a strenuous exercise having not done it before, it's worth just being aware that you build up gradually. Uh, you don't suddenly do a huge amount of exercise. You train properly. Secondly, if you have a family history of a heart-related problem, uh, in young adults particularly, so if you have a, a mother or a father who died suddenly, particularly on exercise um, in their 30s or 40s or, or younger even, then that's a red flag. You should have been checked. And if you haven't been checked, you should be checked. And that should be through the National Health Service. Um, if you have symptoms on exercise, such as if you're running along and you suddenly feel your heart beating very, very rapidly and uncontrollably, that's a, that shouldn't normally happen. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to die or anything, but it does need investigated. And the real red flag is if you're exercising and you lose consciousness. So if you're running cycling hard you suddenly keel over that needs urgent investigation but contrast that with if you go to i'm based in bristol if you go to the bristol 10k you see people running across the line and then they're dropping like flies and that's that's a so collapse after exercise is actually very very common it's usually a mixture of suddenly dropping your heart rate uh, from being high often there's a bit of dehydration and people feel faint so that's rather different but Collapse or loss of consciousness on exercise itself is a red flag. And for individuals who are either new to exercise or who are increasing their exercise load quite significantly, so for example, they're about to embark on a four-month marathon training program, for these people who are less adapted, let's say, to exercise, should we be thinking about investigating them at all, whether that's with a simple ECG, for example? Well, a bit depends on the age. Because um, so often it's the, the middle-aged man who suddenly decides he really ought to be getting fit. He may have been a smoker 10, 15 years earlier. They need a slightly different uh, approach to uh, somebody who's much younger. Um, the first thing is uh, you need to take a history. Have they had any exercise-related symptoms? Um, have they a family history of anybody with exercise-related symptoms? And if, if the answer to that is yes, in either case, they, they need fully assessed. And that would be certainly an ECG, but probably a bit more than that. Um, the European Society of Cardiology have produced fairly clear screening protocols, and they are biased a little bit by being very pro-screening, and there is a negative to screening athletes. Um, but they would suggest that at a minimum, you need a pre-participation questionnaire, so any questions questions about things such as losing consciousness or chest pain or palpitations of exercise, and an ECG and a clinical examination. And there's great debate as to whether or not you should add an echocardiogram to that. It will pick up more things, but it's very much more expensive. The Americans have a different approach. They wouldn't do an ECG. They'd just do a questionnaire, uh, possibly a clinical examination. And there's pros and cons to both these arguments. And the middle-aged athletes are rather different because under sort of 35 or so, the likelihood of a problem is largely due to congenital or uh, inherited heart muscle disease, 
valve problems, etc. After 35, it's almost completely ischemic heart disease, smokers-related heart disease, for want of a better term. And they need a slightly different approach. And just because you mentioned some of the investigations that are used for cardiac screening, so ECGs and ECHOs, for example, would you mind just quickly explaining what they are um, and what it is that they're looking for and hoping to detect? If, if somebody came to see me, and, and I do some, some screening, although I tend to see mostly people who've been found to have a problem, but if they came to see me and they wanted to do, the, for example, the Marathon de Saint, which is you're there, you have to have an obligatory ECG, I would have a chat with them, check about questions such as symptoms and so on and family history. I would listen to the heart which I would expect to be normal, including taking a blood pressure. And then the ECG is a series of, of stickers that go across the front of the chest and on the four limbs, and that looks at the electrical activity of the heart. And it, it tells you quite a lot. It tells you about the heart rhythm. It tells you a little bit about the conduction of the heartbeat and also about the thickness of the varying heart chambers. And it's quite a sensitive test. So if that's completely normal, then it's unlikely. It's not impossible, but it's unlikely there's any major underlying heart problem. Depending on what the, investi- the what the exercise participation was, so the marathon de Saab just requires that. Um, if you're over 40, again with the marathon de Saab, you're expected to do an exercise test, which is basically an ECG, but you run on a treadmill at the same time. Uh, and that looks to see what how the heart behaves when it's stressed. And the other major investigation is an echocardiogram. And that's using sound waves to bounce off the heart chambers and the valves And you can measure the thickness of the heart muscle. You can look and see if there's leaky valves, narrowed valves, um, any weaknesses that may not have otherwise been picked up. You mentioned previously that you would expect to see a thicker heart muscle in athletes. I was just wondering if there's any other changes that you would expect to see on cardiac screening in an athletic population. Yeah, so I mean, quite the heart muscle does become a bit thicker and the heart becomes bigger. Uh, interestingly, more so in men than in women, uh, and there is there are gender related changes, and there's also ethnically related changes. So, uh, a guy from a Afro Caribbean background will have a completely different ECG from somebody from a Caucasian uh, background, and that's that's an ethnic change. So you've got to interpret the findings in light of the person's ethnicity, and of course, many of us now have mixed ethnicities, so uh, we're only starting now to understand how your ethnic background affects your ECG and to some extent your echocardiogram. I also just wanted to ask about heart rate monitors because they've obviously become quite a popular tool now that lots of runners use mainly to train using heart rate zones for example Um, but I was just wondering if there's actually I guess a more important role for heart rate monitors and whether they can give us any indication about the strain on our heart and whether there's any cardiac abnormalities that would indicate that maybe actually, yes, I do need to go and get some screening or investigations done. I mean, I think mainly they're a training tool and I think they're a good training tool because you get to know what's normal for you. Um, Sometimes the first time an athlete picks up that there's a problem is when their heart rate at peak exercise is going along at maybe 165 and suddenly shoots to 220. And athletes all being slightly OCD, and I can, I can say that because I, I wear a heart rate monitor, they'll come in with their Garmin or their Polar printouts, and you can see very clearly when an abnormal rhythm started, and that can be very useful. Um, you have to be a little bit cautious. So, so I remember some years ago when Polar brought out their new uh, heart rate um, monitor, 
Um, it was quite a lot more sensitive than its predecessor. And so it could double count compared to the pre- previous uh, tape. So it counted what's known as the T wave as well as the R wave and the heart rhythm. And so one chap actually wore his old monitor and his new monitor and found that one was exactly twice uh, the other one. And that was easily easily sorted. But that was not an abnormality. That was purely a technical issue. Another topic I wanted to talk about was rest and recovery and the role that that has on our heart health because I feel most runners do add in rest days as as they should in their training plans but I think the emphasis is on looking after the muscles in our mainly lower legs so we wouldn't keep running on tired tight calves um, for example but I don't think we put the same emphasis on onto protecting our heart and letting that recover so I was just wondering if they're or, or how important taking rest days is in protecting our heart muscle and function and whether actually we should be spending more time listening to our heart than kind of the aching muscles of our legs, for example. Honestly, I, I think it does. I, I think it matters quite a lot. I, and I quite often use the analogy of your leg muscles um, because if, if you haven't trained very much, so if I haven't trained and then do a very long run, um, I may not have been much slower than I normally would be, but I'll certainly feel an awful lot worse the following day. My muscles will ache and I'll have difficulty climbing stairs. Um, and I think the situation is probably analogous in the heart. So if you've overdone it, you may not feel the same pain, but you probably get the same issues. Um, if uh, you do extreme exercise, say you do an Ironman triathlon, uh, and uh, one uh, researcher called Andre Lagarche evaluated Ironman triathletes after doing the French Ironman and he looked at their ultrasound scans of the heart and he looked at the uh, release in the blood of a substance called troponin. So if I was to have a heart attack and went into hospital, the first thing to measure would be my troponin level, which goes up if you've had a heart attack because it's a substance that leaks out of damaged heart muscle cells. And what Andre found was that, first of all, the right side of the heart was enlarged in every single person he assessed immediately after the Ironman triathlon, uh, and gradually came back to normal in most, but it may take a week or two. So the, the right heart's enlarged. And the second thing was the level of troponin in the bloodstream at the end of this huge exercise stress. So, so we're talking about a 112-mile cycle, a 2.4-mile swim, and uh, a marathon at the end. So big exercise stress. At the end of that, the levels of troponin in the bloodstream were equivalent to that seen in somebody who just had a heart attack. And so there's great debate as to whether that actually reflects uh, myocardial cell damage, heart cell damage, or if it's to some extent an adaptive phenomenon. But I think it tells you that the heart is undoubtedly stressed. So for me, that means that if you're going to do one of these really big endurance things, you make sure you've trained for it and trained properly. The body adapts, and the body's a wonderful um, a wonderful organism, for want of a better term, and, and it, but it does need to adapt. And the second point is you don't train when, for some other reason, you're unwell. So if you have achy muscles, then don't go out for a long run because probably the heart is aching even though you may not feel it. So you, that can often turn an uneventful run into something that actually can affect your heart for some time, uh, so-called myocarditis. And the third thing is be careful of anything that might affect the heart function. And the, the most obvious of these is some of the stimulants. Um, 
Now, caffeine gels have a very relatively small amount of, of caffeine, and uh, caffeine does improve endurance, provided you stop your coffee for a, a few weeks earlier. But you can buy online some very strong, mainly caffeine and sugar uh, potions, which are marketed for endurance, improving endurance. And they can be bad for somebody who's susceptible to abnormal rhythms. So I've, I've cured many athletes from palpitations by telling them, really, drinking the two cans of Red Bull before you go on to play rugby is a bad idea. And then their palpitations stop. So you know, train properly for long-distance events. Um, don't run or do a big endurance event if you've not fully trained or if you're un- unwell, if you have a viral type illness. And be careful what supplements you take. And do you think that this advice applies to athletes at all levels, from couch to 5K to long-distance endurance athletes, or do you feel like these changes in the heart mainly just apply to athletes that are pushing themselves over long periods of time and for long distances? Well, I mean, something like the couch to 5K is a wonderfully designed program because it is very gentle, and it it allows people to build up uh, both confidence and also build up their their physical fitness. So I think generally these are very very good things. Uh, we we have a sedentary population, and we, people need to get more active. Be, as I mentioned earlier, it would be of great benefit to their general health. I think it's when athletes are just starting to push beyond their comfort zone, um, particularly as they get older. So again, you're know, middle aged man who's really determined, type A personality. The 24-year-old shoots past him on his bike and he gives chase. You know, if you're 48, not 24, then you sometimes have to say, well, this guy's going to get away from me. And it's, it's, um, there, there are changes that occur as you get older in terms of your um, ability to process oxygen, your VO2 max goes down, your peak heart rate goes down. So things do change as you get older. Um, the when you think about the very extreme endurance events such as Ironman triathlon, I think you've got to just be realistic about your abilities, and again, absolutely make sure you train. Although some some athletes can can do these events right up until their sixties or seventies even. And I guess in older athletes, there's quite a big difference between somebody who's always exercised and has built up a really good baseline with gradual increases in fitness compared to somebody who is starting to engage in physical activity later in life, either following a long break from exercise or maybe having never exercised at all and pushing themselves to the limit. I suppose the risks in these groups are quite different. Would that be the right way to think about it? Yes, I think so. Although, I mean, the body is amazing. It's remarkable how you can get back to normal to a much improved level of physical fitness. So even if you've really not done much exercise for many years, I would still encourage people to, to take up exercise again, but just do it cautiously and build up slowly. And if there's any doubt or if you're having any symptoms, get get assessed and that, that could save you running into a problem. But thankfully, these these problems are rare. We've mainly spoken about sudden cardiac events and what we can do in terms of symptom recognition and screening to try and reduce the chance of these sudden cardiac events happening. But I also wanted to discuss some of the long-term changes that can occur in the heart as a result of engaging with endurance or long-distance sports over a long period of time. So 
an ultra runner in their old age, for example. And there's lots of evidence that these individuals are at higher risk of abnormal heart rhythms, so arrhythmias, and also some new evidence that suggests that this can also increase the risk of calcification in the arteries. And there's also been mention of fibrosis of the heart as well. So I was just wondering if you could explain what those risks are, what the links are, and I guess whether we should be concerned about these long-term changes that can occur in, in the heart, because lots of us do engage in quite high levels of activity. Yeah, I mean, so it's really a relatively new area of sports cardiology. But one of the things we've noticed for some time is that the uh, heart rhythm condition, atrial fibrillation, is more common in people who have been endurance athletes. Uh, It's probably of the order of four or five times more common. Um, Atrial fibrillation is not in itself a dangerous or life-threatening arrhythmia, although it can have dangerous consequences if it's not diagnosed and picked up. Uh, And moreover, it seems to be more common in bigger athletes. Um, And there's lots of theories as to why this happens. It may be related to some uh, scar or fibrosis in the atrium. It may be related into the longstanding effect of having a low heart rate. Um, And if you have a low heart rate, then sometimes an escape rhythm that comes as a slightly faster heart rate is not the normal rhythm, but it's atrial fibrillation. so, for example, if you're an oarsman, um, your, prof- your elite-level uh, rowers tend to be big guys and often have great big hearts, and atrial fibrillation is really relatively common in that group. They've still overwhelmingly benefited their heart from doing their exercise, but that's something that has to be picked up and, and can be dealt with. So that, that's the rhythm problems. Ectopic beats, single extra beats, are also really quite common in athletes and they don't seem to have a very major uh, long-term worrying outcome. So it's quite common for athletes to feel occasional bumps and bumps and usually they settle on exercise. So that that again is quite common. There was some worry that um, if you do excessive amounts of endurance, high-level endurance athletic activity, that that could lead to permanent changes in the right ventricle. If you remember, I said that the right ventricle dilates after something like an Ironman triathlon. And I think the jury's still out on this. It's not entirely clear. It may be that there's a subgroup who are susceptible to this, or maybe it's it's just bringing out a problem in in somebody who's got a pre-existing disorder. Uh, Difficult to say. So, I mean, overwhelmingly, that, that level of exercise is good for the heart, but Atrial fibrillation, I would say, is particularly the the one that that can um, cause a problem in in late middle age. Um, The other thing you mentioned is arterial calcification. This is a fascinating thing that was picked up only a year or two ago. So the coronary arteries are little blood vessels supplying blood to the heart muscle. And coronary artery disease is where the uh, internal lining of these blood vessels becomes thickened. And therefore, you get and then you get a blood clot and that causes a heart attack. And calcification, where calcium is deposited in the lining of these coronary arteries in a sedentary person, is associated with an increased risk of of disease inside the vessels. And there's now been two or three papers showing that calcification is more common in in long-term endurance athletes, which has led to all sorts of discussion because we don't see our, our heart wards are not full of endurance athletes who had heart attacks. And it looks as though that what, what's happening here is that whether it's um, 
chronic inflammation or quite why it happens. It only happens in the subgroup. It, it doesn't seem to be the same as calcification that occurs in somebody who's been a smoker or who's had a, lived off deep-fried Mars bars and McDonald's all their life. Um, and they don't seem to have an increased risk of, of heart attacks. So it's an area of quite active research at the moment. And with these long-term changes in mind, is there an optimum level of activity that we should be engaging in so that we can kind of reap all the benefits of physical activity on the heart, but also avoid the long-term impact that exercise can have on the heart? Because I'm assuming that these changes are happening purely in athletes that are engaging in you know, high volumes of exercise over long periods of time rather than individuals who are meeting their, say, 150-minute requirement each week? Well, the, the mortality and indeed the morbidity of exercise has a U-shape to it. In other words, <clears throat> um, what I mean by that is if you have on your x-axis um, the number of hours of exercise and uh, on the y-axis the likelihood of, of dying over a long period of time or the likelihood of developing heart problems, then if you're sedentary on the left side of the x-axis, you have a relatively high risk. As you uh, exercise more and more, that risk goes down and down and down and seems to tip round about 9, 10 hours of exercise a week, at which point it starts to climb back up again. And it's still way below the, that of a sedentary person. And once you're at 21, 22, 23 hours, it starts to climb right, right up again. So there, there does seem to be a sweet spot and I would say that for, for most people, if you're doing sort of nine or 10 exercise, uh, hours of exercise a week, that's probably about optimum. That's not to say doing 13, 14 hours is going to be seriously bad for you because it, because it isn't. Although if you long term are doing 20, 22, 23 hours, like some um, professionals, then that might be. But bearing in mind that the professionals have trained for it, so they're in a slightly different situation. And you also have to take into account intensity. So if your nine or 10 hours is um, jogging around the local heath, um, that's quite different from your nine or 10 hours um, uh, running up and down hills uh, at, at pace, really testing yourself. So intensity also matters. And for for general cardiovascular benefits of, of exercise, you want to be doing an absolute minimum of 30 minutes a day and that's for everybody, athletes and non-athletes. And you want at least two or three days of the week that to be uh, quite significant exercise, so at least moderate intensity exercise. Just going back to the beginning when you mentioned that your research interest was in prescribing physical activity for individuals that were known to have cardiac abnormalities, I suppose it's not really relevant to probably most people listening, um, but it's quite an interesting topic because I feel that most people probably assume that if you've got a cardiac abnormality, you therefore can't engage with physical activity because of the the risk and the strain that it puts the heart under. So I was just wondering what your work has involved and how you manage to encourage physical activity in these patients that are obviously at much higher risk compared to the general population. Yeah, well, I mean, so I, I work um, primarily with, with young people with structural heart problems so either holes in the heart or sometimes sort of two-chambered hearts as opposed to four-chambered hearts. And traditionally, they were told as children that they sat out of PE lessons, that they didn't take part in things. And as a result, they were generally became very unfit adults. 
because fitness is not just the heart, it's the skeletal muscle, it's everything else. And that was actually really bad advice. And we now know that almost the more severe your heart problem is, the more important it is you keep up your overall level of physical fitness. And doctors, as you know, get very little teaching or training in exercise physiology. And so we're, we're trained to prescribe drugs or to do operations. Although if you look at it, many of our patients stop taking the drugs we prescribe fairly quickly after we prescribe them. So the challenge is to take exercise and regard it in the same way as you'd regard a drug. And so in congenital heart disease, every time we see a patient, exercise and should be part of the conversation we have with that patient. And it's encouraging them, almost giving them permission to do more activity. That's, that's the important thing. Um, so what we're doing is we've got a, uh, we're funded by Heart Research UK and we've got a, some online toolkits to give to families, uh, young people, young adults and teenagers to see if they can do more exercise. And what we're trying to do is personalize it because it doesn't have to be sport. It may simply be, you know, when you see stairs and when you see a lift, you go up the stairs and you go up quickly and you might feel hot and flustered and short of breath at the top. That's actually a good thing, not a bad thing, because it's keeping the the skeletal muscles in, in good trim. So if you do that, the, the mitochondria, the little energy producing organs within the skeletal muscles of your arms and legs become more numerous, they become bigger. Therefore, the heart has less work to do. So if you have a poorly heart, that's a good thing to do. But it's counterintuitive to what most doctors are taught in, in uh, undergraduate and indeed in postgraduate medical training. And can we extrapolate that to other cardiac conditions? So can we apply similar rules to people, for example, who are returning to physical activity or will want to start physical activity after, say, a heart attack? Um, I think it can be quite difficult as clinicians to have the confidence to prescribe that kind of recovery plan. But should it be something that we should be getting our patients to do rather than to shy away from? Absolutely. And and I think you know, cardiac rehab has been one of the uh, the best evidence success stories of, of um, ischemic heart disease. The problem is getting it done. So um, it, it has to be almost a cultural change. Uh, so if somebody's had a heart attack, they've been overweight, they've been smoking, you can transform their life by improving their lifestyle, which getting them to stop smoking, lose weight and get fitter. And they'll be able to do much, much more. Um, you have to be aware that if they were to suddenly do a huge amount more, then that could carry a risk. That's not a reason for encouraging them to do exercises. It's a reason for specifically prescribing the exercise suitable for them. But the NHS is very good at treating sickness. It's not very good at preserving health. And so if you have a heart attack, you'll get your few weeks post-heart attack rehab. Then you'll go back out into the community and what I'd like to see is that, the, that within the community, there's uh, exercise classes to encourage people to continue that change in lifestyle. And that's clever and cheap medicine, as opposed to just prescribing 101 drugs, most of which people end up not taking. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's something that I certainly wish I had a lot more confidence in, because I think it's so important that we encourage all our patients to engage in more physical activity but obviously there are risks and we need to uh, have the knowledge and confidence to do that appropriately for the patient in front of us. Um, just returning to the athletic population be that the people that are just starting out with physical activity or 
the extreme endurance athletes that are running you know 100 miles a week or or more even um thank you for all the information you shared that was really useful i was just wondering if there were any final lasting tips that you would like to share i i would i would encourage people to to get active really to get active it's got so many health benefits, not just for the heart. And you listen, at the same time, listen to your body. So if you're struggling, then find out why you're struggling and, and have a chat with your GP or or it may need further uh, uh, or expert help in different areas if it's a musculoskeletal issue or if it's a heart issue. But don't use that as an excuse for not doing it because it really can transform people. And I've had people with quite significant heart disease who've become very good athletes um, despite it. Uh, and it's, I suspect a lot of ath- athletes exercise not because of the heart or anything else, but because of their heads, because it's a good way of giving you control and also improving mood. Uh, and in this time, particularly you with lockdowns and so on, it's one of the reasons why the government is saying you can still exercise because it's a way of, as I say, the human body is designed to be active. And uh, if you want to do it, do it and just listen to your body. And if you're having problems, then seek further advice. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think if exercise was a pill, it's certainly something we'd be prescribing to everyone. So thank you so much for sharing all of that information. That was really great. You're very welcome. So thank you to Dr. Graham Stewart for chatting with me and sharing all of that really helpful advice. If you want to learn more about sports cardiology, then you can follow Graham on Twitter by searching AG underscore Stewart. If you're a healthcare professional and you're interested in learning more about prescribing physical activity, then I can also recommend visiting movingmedicine.ac.uk. Moving Medicine is an initiative to help healthcare professionals have discussions with patients about engaging with physical activity and it's tailored to certain medical conditions, which is really useful. As always, I'm on Instagram and you can find me by searching Marathon Medic or by visiting my website, marathonmedic.com. Thanks for listening.